You're listening to the Ready, Set, Cloud podcast, a show about trending and difficult topics in serverless and in the cloud. Today, we're talking about security, the thankless component to any software system. If you do it right, nobody mentions it. If you do it wrong, well, we've seen those stories on the news. I brought Jason Cow on the show to tell us about how we can improve our security posture starting today. We talk about working with, not against, your security team, dive into AWS organizations, and uncover how to keep your blast radius small. Ready, set, let's go. When I first got into cloud development, I was relieved at all the responsibilities taken off my plate that were now handled by the cloud vendor. Specifically with serverless, I no longer had to deal with hardware allocation, networking, and runtime updates. Even better, security was managed for me by AWS. Or so I thought. While it's true that AWS manages security of the cloud, it was still on me to maintain security in the cloud. Here with me today to talk about what we're still responsible for is Jason Cow. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. I think you make a great point there with security of the cloud versus security in the cloud. One of the things that we often talk about in the security world, especially with AWS and cloud providers, is what we call the shared responsibility model. And in a nutshell, that's basically what does a cloud vendor secure and what is their responsibility, as well as what is the developer or the application team's responsibility in the cloud. And that's what we call security in the cloud. And that's where I work today. Throughout my life, I pivoted from a software developer to cloud security. And over the last few years of my life, I've been working in cloud security, including building out cloud security infrastructure at a large financial firm, doing offensive cloud security consulting. And now I'm the head of research at Cloud Query, which is a small Series A company that focuses on ETL. Well, I can already tell based on that, that you know what you're talking about. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit about uh, the day-to-day? -day? Like what does what the day-to-day -day of a security researcher look like? Yeah, so that's a good question. What I focus on at Cloud Query is I look at what our customers do and how we can help our customers do security effectively. And one of the benefits of working at Cloud Query, and this is one of the reasons why I chose Cloud Query specifically, is the mission of doing open source and doing ETL frameworks for our customers and allowing them to build on top of security use cases. I thought that was very exciting and honestly one of the problems I'd seen in the cloud security world. I think the balance of how to you know, secure data infrastructure applications in the cloud can be overwhelming at times. And Cloud Query helps simplify that with providing the right amount of data and also the right data to our customers and allows us to look at it. So from a day-to-day -day perspective, I could be working with customers, I could be doing research on different security use cases, diving deep into AWS as there's a lot of intricacies, a lot of complexities, and honestly, a lot of services that offer a lot of benefit. And one of the things you always look for is how do we help our customers use these securely and also help them understand what they're doing in the cloud. That's awesome. Now I'm going to ask you probably the most generic and broad question I can. Tell me a little bit about the security landscape in the cloud, specifically with AWS today. Like, what are we looking at? How's it feeling? So security of AWS is interesting. I think one of the good things that AWS has done is they provide security of the cloud, which they manage and is their responsibility. But they provide a lot of good tooling for securing the cloud itself, the security in the cloud. Looking across when AWS first came out, there wasn't necessarily something called guard duty. There might've been AWS IAM, which is fairly early on, but they've done a good job, right? They've pulled Macy in for sensitive data, looking at S3. 
introducing service control policies, permission boundaries. We can look at logging and monitoring, right? A lot of things are recorded at AWS CloudTrail that wasn't necessarily a standard before using a cloud service provider where you see a lot of API calls and actions performed inside CloudTrail itself. And the list goes on of useful tools that AWS provides to help people secure their infrastructure and data as well. Who really needs to focus on security? Let's take an enterprise with a thousand people. A lot of enterprises will have security dedicated teams. Does anybody else need to be involved in this quote unquote security scheme that you're talking about? That's such a loaded question. It's something I'm actually very passionate about. Years ago, right, looking at traditional enterprises and looking at organizational structures, we see teams like a central security team, we see the application teams, they may not talk. And the security team may come up with policies that don't make quite as much sense or may not work with certain applications. So to your question today, right, security is everyone's responsibility. And there's a lot of benefits that come with using cloud effectively and quickly. All the different services, right, looking at serverless, for example, looking at all the managed databases, the list goes on. Learning how to use these services securely and effectively helps business, helps drive innovation, help drives providing customer value. So if it's just a security team, that's not gonna scale very well. And what we've seen is like setting central policies, guardrails, so to speak, and then helping out the application teams really help driving security forward. I think that's super valuable. So in this case, right, I think it's on everyone, right? Is if someone's out there creating their own Lambda function, the security team can't sit there and say, I'm gonna go work on your IAM role. I'm gonna look at your encryption. I'm gonna look at how do you manage your secrets? Do you use secret manager? Do you use parameter store if we're talking about native AWS services? Or are you just storing them in environment variables? A security team doesn't scale to support every single application team. So it's almost a little bit on those app teams to understand how to secure in the cloud and secure the applications. And I think that's what's key here is that because things can move so quickly and their innovation be driven at such a faster pace now, security almost goes across everyone. And then we can have specific experts, like you might have an IAM expert somewhere, you may have an infrastructure expert somewhere else, but truly it's a collaborative effort to make sure things are secure because at the end of the day, no one wants to be on the news for here's another public S3 bucket or some other breach, right? Just because they might've misconfigured something or misunderstood how something was configured, but truly focus on driving value and delivery with all these great things that cloud offers. I like that answer a lot. It makes me feel justified. I was a development manager a few years ago over a, a cloud native team. And whenever our dates would start to slip, it usually was because of security stuff that we were, we were trying to implement at the very beginning. One of the hardest things that we ran across when we were learning about the cloud, specifically with serverless, was IAM permissions. We started off putting them aside and giving all of our policies wildcards do everything just to get it working. And it was a lot of effort to break that habit because you obviously don't want that. AWS pushes the principle of least privilege and only granting your functions and resources the permissions that they absolutely need and nothing else. Do you have any recommendations for how to best learn how to build these policies and, and how to know what you need? I do want to take that example. I think it's a very pertinent one. We see that a lot. Application teams, for the sake of speed, start off with a very broad IAM role with, let's say, an administrator star star policy. It becomes really tough then when that gets deployed, let's say, production, and having to scope that down when a security team comes along later and says, hey, look, y'all have this over-permissive policy, we need to scope it down, but this application is currently working. So then it becomes almost a game of how do we balance out security with not impacting any customers using this application at the current time. So it's a little bit better if security gets baked in or understood at the beginning. 
is saying, hey, we're going to give you the template for maybe some scoped down permissions. Here are some checks that you can run in your pipeline that help you determine if you really need access or not. And even better, right, I think the education and eventually the learning the iteration on it, because there are teams that are out there that start with this overprint policy and then leave it because it's not a high priority. So I think helping build that in the start, building it in the development cycle makes it a little bit easier. And there's different schools of thought on this, whether or not to give someone access to IAM, let them configure their own IAM policies and learn from the start, or whether or not to have more centralized policies. But I'm a firm believer in giving a lot of developers freedom, and that way they understand what they're truly building, right? And I also know there are companies out there that are trying to figure out how do I produce least permission policies. So you can use tools like Access Analyzer to see, hey, what does this application use? And then in a QA or a test environment, using Access Analyzer, see what resources does this touch, what permissions does this actually need over the next like X amount of time. And then using that to drive the eventual prod environment. And then using that to ensure that, you know, using security as a tool and not necessarily as a roadblock, right? And ensuring that the application does go out well and gets designed well with the right checks and balances in place. So one of the big issues that we had to get over uh, in my last job was steering these roadblocks, for lack of a better word, that our security team was putting in place. We wanted to do something, but the roadblocks that were in place, for whatever reason they were there, uh, wouldn't let us do it. So we had to figure out either how to get around it or figure out if we needed to request an exception to the rule. And it was a lot of work to get the train moving. And it created some animosity between the security team and, and my app teams. But on the other end of it, looking back, I understand that those guardrails are there for a reason. They're to keep you from shooting yourself in the foot. It's very easy to do with security, and there's really no lenience with making security mistakes. So what do you think about establishing guardrails and rules prior to any app dev? So the, it would be more like accepting the recommendations from AWS just kind of as is, and then backing into a specific set of rules based on your company's needs. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I'm not going to say whether it's good or bad. I've seen it different ways and done successfully different ways as well. What really speaks to me from your story itself is I did see friction between security and application teams when it comes to security, right? When it feels too much like a roadblock, then teams try to look for exceptions or ways to get around. And I think there is a right place and a right time for exceptions. But it's tough to figure out what are the proper boundaries and how do we balance it with what AWS recommends. One theme that is somewhat common around the development industry is, okay, AWS made these recommendations, but my company or your company or whoever's company may have more stringent recommendations. A common one is, let's say, AWS says, hey, just use encryption for everything. Encrypt everything at rest. And maybe a highly regulated industry may say, I want to make sure everyone uses a customer managed key versus a key that Amazon provides. But I think to your point, right, there there could be a difference in guardrails, and I think it becomes tough. So I think what works well is when security teams experiment along with application teams to not necessarily slow them down, but to also learn along the way. So if, let's say we're both new to AWS and we're working together, you're the application team and I'm the security team, I may have no idea what KMS may look like. I have no idea what this encryption may look like, and we'll use the example of Lambda. You spin up a Lambda function, you look at the environment variables, you say, okay, I need to put a couple possible secrets in here or I need to put some data in here that I may need and may not be secrets. 
then I could along the way, look around for solutions, right? Oh, do we use secrets manager? Do we use parameter store? Is it okay to leave some of these values and environment variables? And I think that works well. I think it's hard for security teams, and I speak from some experience here, to look at every single service within AWS that everyone wants to use, because there's so many and there's so much value in all of them. But having that learning experience, like let me ride alongside you and learn as we go. And then that way we can craft some better policies along the way that makes sense from both a development and a security perspective. I, I play the devil's advocate and also whatever the opposite of the devil's advocate is with situations like that. Because if you have somebody, one of the security engineers riding along with you and see the justification for whatever hole you're asking for in the security policy, do you feel like that could potentially put up blinders on the security engineer if they see, oh, they really do need this one exception to the rule? I've seen it firsthand. They have some sympathy toward the application developers. Sympathy isn't necessarily a bad thing here. I think it's understanding as well, right, is that they really do need this exception and how do we manage that properly? And I think that's where like a good enterprise security team comes into play is helping manage those exceptions. If we use a common example like S3, right, S3 buckets should not be public. Amazon's added controls recently. They've started to recommend not to use ACLs. But you look at block public access, for example, where you can turn that on at the account level and say, okay, this stuff should not be public in your S3 buckets. But there are exceptions and there are teams that do need to host public content in S3. So then what do those exceptions look like? And in that case, in most security teams say, hey, you want to make an S3 bucket public? No. But if you're saying, hey, I really need to host this or this is the reason why I have my S3 bucket public, then it becomes a discussion of, okay, that exception makes sense. Not necessarily blinders, but how do we help you drive a solution? Does it exist in a separate account? We can talk about account structure. We need to put more controls so that sensitive data doesn't get inadvertently added to the S3 bucket. Or is there a happy medium of, okay, I see your use case, but it may not need to be public. Let me design this something else for you. Or let's work together on design. And I think that's part of having the security engineer along. And I think having the sympathy is important, right? So they understand what that engineer is trying to do versus more of an adversarial approach. Now, here's my only question that comes out of that explanation, because I, I agree with you 100%. Now, a lot of companies these days are either just starting their cloud journey or they're a year or two in, they've built some expertise, but they haven't built the specialties like what a security engineer knows. The people that ride along with the app devs and don't get blinders on because of sympathy. They are able to cut through the noise and say, this is what you actually need versus what you're asking me for. How do people get that? How do companies go in and approach that? What are the strategies that you see? So from my personal experience, because this was very true when I first started in cloud, it was trial by fire, getting in there, learning how to use services, hands-on experience. I don't want to mince words here. I thought learning AWS security was fairly difficult. There's a lot to learn. IAM is almost a new paradigm, especially with how Amazon crafts policies learning how those apply, learning exceptions, looking at resource policies. It's a journey. It's a learning experience. Even today, I, I'm still learning in AWS. I'm still learning security. It's a constant journey. We're never done. Even when it's early on, it's looking at what are those best practices. I know AWS has been good about releasing more prescriptive guidance, like how to set up your accounts within an organization, right? These are IAM policies. Hey, you may not want to use users, right? If you look through console, not advocating for click ops here, but if you use console and try to click through and create an IAM user and access keys, there are warning signs along the way that say, hey, consider using something else for this. Maybe try using IAM roles, maybe try using identity center, et cetera. 
that helps an organization build out and grow their security engineering organization. Definitely. Now, you've mentioned AWS organizations before, and I don't know if we consider that a service or a feature of AWS, but it, it's super powerful. It uh, lets you trickle down and do a whole bunch of different stuff with policies on what you can and can't do. When would a company consider using organizations? I don't know if that's more of a, is the company a certain size and they should start using it? Is that something that startups need to start doing? What are some of the advantages? Let's talk about that first. What are some of the advantages of using it? And when would somebody consider using it? I'm a big fan of AWS organizations. I remember this got introduced partially through some of my early cloud work. And from a personal perspective, I would almost recommend using or looking at organizations as soon as they start. Organizations can be used from a non-security management perspective just for billing purposes. So I think that helps initially get off the ground. But I think past that, right, is using organizations, having that organizational management account, locking the keys to that account itself because it has certain permissions to other accounts and other things that are a little bit more powerful from a management perspective. And then letting teams run a little bit free with their own accounts Having many accounts is very useful because it acts as logical boundaries between resources. So having those set up properly, having account strategy, looking at do I separate environments, do I separate by, let's say, application teams, but giving accounts out and building into separate organizational units, which are subgroups, and just managing them through there. There's so much benefit from using organizations at the beginning and doing an account strategy from there. But I think those are all a lot of benefits to using organizations. When it gets to it, using one account for everything is probably not the right solution for a lot of companies. It may make sense for really small companies, but I think even separating out and having a dev and a prod account, right? Or it's test account, right? Those are definitely things I would think about very early on and making sure the blast radius from impacting prod is very small. Even if we talk a little bit deeper in IM and my inner geek about IM comes out here is there are condition keys that talk about using OUs or the organizational ID to help establish a data perimeter in AWS as well. When we talk about multiple account strategies, right? We think about, do I need to share data from one account to another? Whether that's like, hey, let me reach into an S3 bucket, right? But using those condition keys really helps. And that drives security and a, the new paradigm of having a data perimeter by using IAM controls is fantastic. So I think there's a whole lot of benefits to using that within an enterprise account structure and account strategy almost. You said enterprise, I think probably five times. And I'm going to single it out because is that something that really is unique to enterprises? Is that something that startups, maybe five person to 20 person startups even need to consider? It's a good question. Enterprise typically has a connotation of larger organizations or larger companies. I think that all companies should consider using organizations and having multiple accounts. And it's a good call out, right? I think of enterprises or I think of companies using cloud and there could be an enterprise with hundreds, thousands of AWS accounts and there could be someone with 10, 15, maybe just five, right? But I still think organizations is a great way of managing those accounts and creating again, like using a data perimeter, identity access management rights, figuring out how to do logical isolation of resources, even having like maybe a central account. A lot of those features make sense with AWS organizations. It's a great service for people to use to really drive their account strategy forward. Another call out from your explanation was, uh, you said blast radius, and then you described it tangentially. I can't believe we got 20 minutes into this conversation before we said the word blast radius when talking about security. And for those that don't know, what is a blast radius? So blast radius in a nutshell, looking across security is if one thing gets impacted, what other things can I touch? 
So if you're looking at account itself, let's say I compromise IAM user access keys. If that account itself has a lot of sensitive data, if the IAM user has a lot of access, then potentially I could get out with, let's say I have access to all the S3 buckets and there's a bucket with all this PII, then you know the blast radius is huge. Even worse, right? Another thing is if I can get into an account, can I do different role assumptions? Can I jump and do lateral movement? Can I move from one account to the other? And in that case, the blast radius gets larger and larger. If we think about this from a security perspective, do I keep sensitive data somewhere where it's a little bit more safe? And that way, if something gets compromised in an adjacent account, it can't get over. One of the examples I would use is, let's say someone's trying to break into a bunch of houses in the neighborhood and lo and behold, 10 houses in the neighborhood all use the same key. That person, once they find a key, may have access to 10 houses. But if every house has a different key and they only find one key and they can only get into one house, then the blast radius is contained a little bit smaller there. If they find, let's say, my key ring and it has every single key to my house, it has a key to my safe, it has a key to my bedroom, it has a key, I don't know, my car as well. They can get off with a lot of stuff, but if it's only one key, right, then the blast radius may be contained. Um, and that's, in a nutshell, the concept of blast radius itself. And it's a very important concept in AWS. It doesn't necessarily have to be, did I escape with data or did I export data to my personal computer? It could be something like, did I take down a running application that may impact a bunch of users? And then maybe did I jump in another environment or another account where I can compromise more things? But that's what blast radius is all about. I really, really like your analogy of having the same key for all the houses on the same street. It was reminding me of a conversation, several conversations that I had with my app teams back in the day when we were trying to decide, do we use one KMS key for our application? And that's in air quotes since you can't see it. Uh, or do we have a KMS key per microservice that we had? It was an application that had maybe 15 or, or 16 microservices building it. And we had we went back and forth a lot. But thinking about it from if you get one key, you have access to all the houses point of view, that conversation really seems moot at that point. It was it seems silly to share keys. Right. And that's that's a great analogy. I actually really love it. And great link to KMS is thinking about this right. It's hard to manage an IAM because IAM is almost like a spider web. If someone gets in and compromises an IAM access key and that user has access to every single KMS key in your account, then they're going to be able to decrypt the data, assuming they have data access. And if it's one key, it's pretty straightforward, right? There's only one key in the account, or even worse is if the data is unencrypted. But looking through, I think you can have up to 100,000 KMS keys in an account, and I think that quote is adjustable. But looking at how do we figure out what a KMS key strategy may look like, right? Do we use one key per, in your case, microservice? Do we use the same key across all of these? Are we going to use the same resource policy for the KMS key across all these? What does our resource policy look like? Are we going to use separate IAM entities or how do we exactly do the right balance of all this as well? And it's a difficult conversation because it's also the balance and trade-off of management versus security. And let's say there's one KMS key all of it. What happens if the KMS key gets deleted or disabled? What happens to all the data? Can we recover it or not? And that all goes back to blast radius too, is the same when we go back to the 10 houses on the street. Let's say I have keys to all these 10 houses and assuming they're all mine, but I lose the one key that I have, then what happens? I can't get back into any of these houses, assuming they're all locked. There's a lot of trade-offs associated with how to manage this properly and strategy. It's always a fun discussion, right? Because I don't think there's always a perfect answer, a one size fits all, or in this case, like a one key fits all, but it's what makes sense for that organization and what may work best for them may not work best for someone else. It's the classic answer to almost any question in software. It depends.
So we're running a little bit low on time. So I want to put you on the spot. What are your most important actionable security items that somebody could take today? What can they go in and check on their application or put on the development schedule for something they're about to build to be a little bit more security conscious? That's a good question. And I'm going to start with one of my favorites. I think good security in AWS starts with identity access management. So I would always say looking at IAM and seeing it, you know, ways to secure that. There are, I'll put my geek hat here on in security. There's a lot of different ways of privilege escalation. There's talks out there. There's research out there on IAM pass role. If you're using an IAM role, looking at the trust policy there, but even like creating a user, creating a role, modifying policies, right? There's a lot to be looked at there. So I always think IAM is always a work in progress and a good area to focus on that potentially can have a lot of good security impact, but relatively more straightforward an application team to work on. When I go into number two, I think it becomes a little harder when we think about like broader security things, such as ADOS organizations account structure. As of right now, I think moving things between accounts is very difficult and there may already be an account strategy, but always looking at identity access management would be the first place I start. That makes sense. I mean, it touches everything. I want to say that I saw a blog post from AWS in the middle of last year that said that on average, IAM service gets somewhere in the realm of 1 million transactions or API calls a second across the board, not just, you know, scope to one account, but every second of every day of every year, it gets at least a million calls. The sheer scale of that service is just incredible. Looking through it and modifying a policy in the fly, right? I'm creating a role or whatever you may have. It's just crazy that this is, I mean, everyone's doing it, right? In AWS, everyone has to. And to your point, I think that the sheer scale of that just is incredible. So impressive. All right, Jason, if anybody wants to get a hold of you after this to ask you some security questions, what is the best way for them to reach you? If you're interested and want to chat more, I'm always looking to chat about security. You can either find me on LinkedIn, or if you want to chat anything about Cloud Query, you can always reach me at cloudquery.io or my email, which is just jason at cloudquery.io as well. But yeah, thanks for having me, Alan. This was great. I really enjoyed our conversation. It really made me think. I know you can't see this, but I'm definitely smiling right now. So I appreciate this a lot. Awesome. Yes, me too. I learned a whole lot. So I really appreciate the time. And thank you again. Thanks. That's it for this episode of the Ready, Set, Cloud podcast. Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on the latest episodes. For more info on trending cloud topics, be sure to visit readysetcloud.io and sign up for the serverless picks of the week newsletter. I'm Alan Helton, and we're out of here. 